and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is We're recording for Contrarian's Corner for Double Indemnity. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and co-pilot on this never-ending travel of the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Julio, going way back in time tonight, and we're also testing the waters of, um, I guess, waters that have offered varying results for you personally in the noir <laughs> genre. Yes. Are we going to the to the granddaddy of them all as far as noir? I mean, I know there's been noirs before Double Indemnity, but I most of the quotes, most of the comments, the, the lore around this movie hail it as just the ultimate uh, noir, the prime example of noir. This is where you point to when you want to say noir. When you explain noir to someone, it's like, this is it, Double Indemnity. Uh, that's Black and white. It's definitely a measuring stick. Um, quite a decorated film, both uh, contemporaneously and historically. And so it should be an interesting one to discuss. The reason this is appearing on your podcatcher timelines is it's the latest demand from one of our wonderful patrons. And we'll get to that here momentarily. Uh, Julio, 1944. Not often we go back this far in time for what we do here, so kind of excited to see what uh, the end result comes to be. Yeah, what's the what's the oldest we've gone back? I'm trying. I was trying to think. I mean, obviously we did Modern Times a long, long time ago, and that is when when movies were just transitioning into talkies. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously a big deal. But then, what we did uh, the African Queen, which yeah, feels like it was kind of an old movie. I mean, I knew it was old because of Bogart, but... Yeah, that's from the 50s. Okay, so just a decade removed from this. Um, man, that's it, I think. <laughs> the, the contrary, I'm not, not known for really Pre-70s, going back to the classics. But, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, old by young people's standards, but, you know, typically when we go before the 70s, it's kind of a big deal for us. Yeah, which is kind of funny in a way because there is a lot of revered movies from around this time that in a way they're just uh you know fertile ground to mine for our contrarians gimmick mm-hmm. well billy wilder makes his debut here on the contrarians honestly looking over his filmography it uh, may not be the last time actually to be fair he a film of his has been discussed on the contrarians before it just wasn't the film he covered he directed the front page Starring uh, Walter Matthau 
and oh, uh, wow. <laughs> Jack Lemon and Susan Sarandon. The movie, of course, that uh, spawned the idea for Dolomite. In the right. if, if we stretch the criteria as far as <laughs> what do you have to do to qualify as a movie that's been discussed in the contrarians, then yes. He has been covered on here before. Uh, but well, I'll do you one better, Alex. A good while ago, I did a QVR for Sunset Boulevard on our Patreon channel. Mm-hmm. So that's there you a- go. That's a little more of a Billy Wilder exploration. We have that. And then, you know, Sabrina, Seven Year Itch, Some Like It Hot. There, There is an opportunity for him to appear uh, in The Contrarians once more in the future. But Double Indemnity is the name of the game today, starring... Fred uh, McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Julio, is this the first film of either of those that you've seen? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know who these people were. And you know what? I will not be shamed for it. It's a big world out there. There's a lot of movies. And for what it's worth, at least I had heard of uh, Barbara Stanwyck. So there's that. Fred McMurray <laughs> had no idea. <laughs> I have more of a familiarity with uh, Barbara Stanwyck as well. But uh, McMurray just has that definitive, you know, golden age of Hollywood, noir, chiseled jaw, you know, slicked back hair face. Well, uh, of course. (laughs) Otherwise, why bother, you know? And an endless filmography that guy has as well. So before we get into why we're discussing Double Indemnity, let's just go ahead and get out of the way what it is we do here on The Contrarians. Uh, Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh and accompanied with that lovely, delightful, trademarked, uh, you know, that intellectual property, that little logo that they like to show off. What was I watching? Oh, I watched The Big Sick last night, and that Blu-ray cover has the certified fresh logo on it. It knocked it down a whole half star in my letterbox review. <laughs> that tomato staring right at you. Mocking me. And what we do with those movies is bring them down to size, discuss uh, maybe some of the overrated acting, overrated direction, storytelling choices, bad score, uh, poor supporting acting, whatever we really need to do, what, whatever we can sink our teeth into to make a claim that this movie uh, may not be all it's cracked up to be. Being that Double Indemnity is 97%, a strong, powerful, erect 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, we will be making a case for uh, maybe why this movie doesn't really deserve the legacy that it has. Uh, Conversely, on alternating episodes, we'll find a movie that's lowly rated, shoot for about 30% and below, and as you could guess, make a case for that film's positive merit. Find whatever we need to, to make a case that, hey, this isn't as bad as these critics have come together to say on Rotten Tomatoes be it bold storytelling, underrated acting, score, soundtrack, like I said, really whatever it takes to get the job done. We do this all for two reasons, namely one, shit subjective. <laughs> Art in general, you can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical and negative about it if you really truly set your mind to it. Number two, which has been highlighted recently in an article Julio shared on our Twitter page, uh, the Rotten Tomato system has many flaws And I think in a lot of cases, people misconstrue sometimes what these ratings can mean. 97% doesn't mean that 97% of the movie is good. And I know I make that joke from time to time because I've had people tell me that's what they thought it meant. That last 3%, the the end credits really dropped the ball. (laughs) That comprises the first half of an episode. We call that Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about our movie du jour, in this case, Double Indemnity, they just have to stick around for part two, the second half. 
That is correct. Part two of every episode aptly titled Real Talk is where we tell you how we really feel about the movie. Uh, we forget about the gimmick. We don't worry about the tomato meter score anymore. And we just tell you our true feelings. In this case, about Double Indemnity, which is a first watch for me. And it was a first watch for you as well, Alex? Yes, sir. How do you how do you watch it? Because I... I having the the foresight of of like looking at the schedule a few months ago, uh, I actually snatched Double Indemnity during the last Criterion sale. Nice. Uh, I just rented on YouTube. Did you get the supplements as part of the rent? <laughs> I, I did not. Now I'm jealous. So yes, real talk is where you find out how we feel, and you will also find out how the patron that demanded this movie from us, uh, how he feels. He was kind enough to send us an audio clip explaining his relationship with Double Indemnity. And uh, this is Mr. John Keating, a longtime friend of the show, longtime patron now, <laughs> and also the man responsible for writing The Concessionaires Must Die, which is uh, a movie that uh, if you've been with us for a while, you, you've heard both Alex and I talk about. Mm-hmm. It may come up again in real talk. Uh for that, you have to wait until the second half of the show. First, Contreras Corner. This movie is 97%, so we're going to tear it to pieces. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent. 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. All right, Julio, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. As we've mentioned already, this movie has a legacy that precedes it. Uh, a movie that I knew of before it was thrown on our desk here just because of its legacy. So I imagine you didn't have much of a hard time finding positive reviews. No, flooded with fresh tomatoes. Uh, I just had to grab a handful. And sometimes I try to go with some sort of theme for Double Indemnity, at least a couple of these quotes fall under the category of uh, pretentious critics. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. Turns out that when you pull out a movie from the 40s that is well regarded by, I hate to say it, but by film Twitter, you're going to find a lot of uh, big words on the quotes. For example, Chuck Bowen from Slant Magazine says, Double Indemnity is a ruthless and poignant cornucopia of the details that command our lives. I'm bored. Now, <laughs> Cornucopia is one of those words that I, I think that we've used here on the show before, but not in a way that it's not like we're taking ourselves seriously when mm-hmm. we use it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this guy combined Cornucopia with the details that command our lives. What the hell does that have to do with the story Oof. of double indemnity? It's about insurance. But not to be outdone, Ian Thomas Malone from ianthomasmalone.com says, The murder isn't the result of a battle between good and evil, but rather a natural response to a system that had no place for either Phyllis or Neff, both pawns in someone else's game. Capitalism is the true villain of dot dot dot. Dude, I, like, no, I know you got that just to annoy me. Like that? I did. Yes, that... <laughs> oh. Where do I it's fucking about start? At least. Yeah. <laughs> What's the date on that? I mean, it would be funny if that was a contemporary review. <laughs> yeah, it's like March 2023. <laughs> uh, this is from June 27, 2022, Alex. Okay. Sounds about right. Like through the looking glass of the Trump years. That is, there's not much more annoying than someone who watches a movie and tries to force like their idea of what it is. I mean, you know, you can interpret art any way you want, but sometimes it's my uh, John Carpenter thing about 
oh, Halloween's about male oppression against females. And he's like, no, it's fucking not. Like, so when I hear people that have some really annoying self-indulgent spin on a movie that clearly isn't about that, I, I, I don't know. It's a bit much. Continue. Well, I'm going to turn down the, the pretentiousness a little bit. We're going to go with T.C. Kemp from Birmingham Post, who says it does not engage the emotions mercifully. Rather, it invites the laying of odds as to whether the guilty parties will get away with it. Put get away with it in quotation marks. So I wouldn't ever say that a movie that doesn't engage the emotions is a good one. That That's a positive thing. I want movies to engage my emotions. So that's why I watch stuff like if i don't want to engage i mean that's why am i watching you know i understand that there's a concept of just having something playing in the background uh but i think that if you have something playing in the background and not engaging with it then it's not worth writing about yeah no argument here dc kemp you're wrong go away and finally, we're going to close with Roy Stewart from the Daily Record UK, who says, Double Indemnity is positively the best murder film I've ever, ever seen. And it's good, old, straight, old villainous murder without any psychological alleyways to get lost in. This man likes his characters, his murderers. Simple. Not complex. Doesn't like getting lost in alleys. <laughs> also, no. <laughs> he likes it when it's just wide open spaces. And it's all, well, that's probably why he likes Double Indemnity, because it's all black and white. No shades of gray here. So with that, Alex, it's time to uh, bring Billy Wilder down to our level. Let's see uh, what we have to say about Double Indemnity, the movie. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. So, Julio, Double Indemnity is a provision for payment of double the face amount of an insurance policy under certain conditions. For example, when a death occurs as a result of an accident. So it's not exclusive to trains. I mean, honestly, what is there to say about this that people wouldn't already know? If you haven't seen this movie, you've seen this movie. This guy gets swept up in this situation because he finds himself fawning over this woman. Uh, There's death, deceit, betrayal, sex. And in the end, you know, kind of gets... He gets caught because there is there are no clean getaways, as both the taglines of Drive and No Country for Old Men told us. <laughs> That's the tagline of the Criterion as well. But we kind of start from the end because we begin with our main character, Fred McMurray, playing Walter Neff. He's obviously in bad shape. He's sweating, and um, we don't really see what the cause of this issue is, but he's recording a confessional that he committed a murder. And Julio, you know, we've we've done reindeer games on here before and several other movies that start with the end. I guess this was kind of a fresh concept at the time. But man, watching through 2023 lenses, this is played out. Well, also, because you need to know how to deploy this sort of narrative device. You can't just explain. You can't just give me everything on those first five minutes. And this dude does. He goes, I killed him. I didn't get the money. I didn't get the girl. Okay, well, why am I watching? <laughs> you already told me everything that happens. Like with Affleck, at least you you kind of want to know what happened. Here, it doesn't really... What's the point? And, and honestly, he doesn't say it right away, but you can tell he's dying. Like, could you tell, Alex, even though you, they don't show the blood at first? I mean, yeah, he was in rough shape. And I imagined, you know, because I've seen movies at this point in my life, that his testimonial was like, his. it was his last will and testament. He's just He knows he's going out, so he wants to get it all on the record. Yeah, he's uh, leaving the longest voicemail ever recorded on film. Uh, 
Fred McMurray, Alex. Noir Ed Helms. Can you see it? Maybe. I mean, he's a bit more classically, you know, movie good looking than Ed Helms. But he didn't make me laugh nearly as hard as Andy Bernard does. He's just, uh, he's at the center of this movie, Alex. And I, I just, I was not charmed. And I think I was supposed to be charmed by him. Is this just because I have an adverse reaction to men in the 40s? Or is it just that he's not a good actor? I mean, if this is your first time listening, Julio does have an aversion to noir in general. So I think he, one of the things we've discussed is just these characters are sometimes very dumb. We can see what's coming before they can. And it's frustrating as a viewer to watch. In this case, it's he's just blinded by love or lust, as it were. But Lust. He knows her for like five minutes. And then he's like, I love you, baby. But then like halfway through the movie, he learns that she's crazy and killed someone before. But then he's just like, nah, not my girl. <laughs> she didn't do that. He's, we're in too deep now. <laughs> and our object of desire, Barbara Stanwyck, is introduced immediately as... A few weeks earlier, Neff meets with the alluring Phyllis Diedrichson during a house call to remind her husband to renew his automobile insurance policy. They flirt until Phyllis asks about taking out a policy on her husband's life without his knowledge. All right. So, I mean, in a time where we discuss red flags just based on someone's two sentence long Tinder profile, this guy can't see like an issue with this. She's like, hey. How much scratch can I get without this dude knowing that you know he he may be dying soon? So let's just be hypothetical for a minute. But we do get a, a wonderful pun of she answers the door, the maid answers the door, but she comes out like in a a robe, and uh, we get to play on words about insurance. He's like, I just want to make sure you're fully covered. Like, ah, ah. <laughs> Such a charmer. This uh, Fred McMurray. <laughs> a bit better than the original line of, he said, I just want to see your tits. That was the original line that was in the movie. <laughs> That's the, the director's It cut. didn't test well in some of the Bible belt. So he's, uh, so Fred McMurray here, Walter Neff, from the beginning, as soon as he walks into that house, just thinking with his dick. He's okay. just letting his crotch lead the way. What makes it worse is that he does figure out what she's implying. It's not that, oh, he he was too dumbstruck by her beauty, her her sexiness, and so he unknowingly helped her plan the murder of her husband. No, he knows. He he he's smart enough. He's been around long enough that he knows that she's planning to, or she's implied that she wants to kill her husband, mm-hmm. and yet he can't stop himself. <laughs> he's still. He still eventually gets involved with her. It's uh, that is exactly Alex. That is when I just start having those issues with noir, where I'm like, dude, it's the combination of you making terrible decisions and you having a voiceover that just won't stop, where you explain to me how bad the decisions are. It, like you're fully aware of what's happening and you can't stop yourself. Mm-hmm. I guess it, in this day and age, the concept of the femme fatale is. It's pretty outdated in the sense that I think the death nail was the film Femme Fatale from 2002 with uh, <laughs> Rebecca Romaine Stamos. I think that was when, you know, we all kind of wised up to the idea of the concept. But this was what, <laughs> 60 years before that. So they, I guess they get a pass. Right. It was it was 60 years before Brian De Palma just made the ultimate statement about <laughs> what it's like to fall under the spell of a. Uh, of a woman that will destroy your life. Get to see Antonio Banderas just going to town on <laughs> Rebecca Romaine's demos. You do not get to see that here, which no. is 
warranted. I think that we needed uh, to see what the sex was like to really understand why Fred McMurray is acting so carelessly. Our uh, patrons know from our Blue is the Warmest Color episode that the intense sex scenes in that both Hulu and I justify as paying off when you see the intense heartbreak that Adele goes through in that because it's like, man, can relate to that. Your relationship just driven on sex. But, you know, to be fair, they no uh, fucking Adele doesn't kill someone in that. <laughs> Emotionally, she does. Nor does Emma ask her to. Imagine how awesome it would have been if that was the turn that movie took in the fucking seventh hour is <laughs> Leah Sadu turns to Adele Exertropolis and just like, hey, I want you to kill this person for me. <laughs> and she does. Yes. Yes. But then still ends up being alone at the end, walking home alone. Yeah. But that's that's the thing. If if uh, uh, if the idea of a femme fatale, or uh, well, it's a lot harder. Is there even an equivalent, like a male counterpart to the femme fatale? Is there like a a male fatale, or is it just that we've accepted, rightly so, that women are too smart to fall for that? So it's always going to be the guy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Did Let you him. see Barbie? <laughs> That's fair. That's a much needed reminder for for this generation. All right, but but still, it's okay to leave some stuff to the imagination. I think that our imagination can do wonders, can really go a long way when it comes to making a story work. But sometimes you need to show us, and it's even worse when what you're showing us it's it's the opposite of what you should be showing us. And by that I mean that the relationship between Neff and, and Phyllis it seems so chaste. Physically, and of course, yes, I know it was the forties. There was no; they couldn't get away with a sex scene, right? But I would like at least an implication, something, right? Instead, there's a moment where the camera just they hug, and then he just says his voiceover that's like never ends. Says something like, "We just sat there holding each other." I'm like, "No, you didn't. We know <laughs> for this story to make sense." You two have to have been having sex for like six hours. And then you come out of there like, you're right. We have to kill him. <laughs> Comes out, you know, with his hair all askew. And he's, uh, they, no, it would go to the clock on the wall and it showed spinning for hours. <laughs> and then he comes out all sweaty with his hair askew. And he's like, he's a dead man, baby. <laughs> he has like the, the fresh scratches on his chest, <laughs> just bleeding a little. His lower lip is bleeding. She, of course, I mean, she's smoking throughout most of the movie, but this is where we get the shot of her, you know, her hair's all matted and she's just smoking a cigarette like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Well, some of the double entendre that they use in the in the dialogue. I mean, if you're going to get away with that, if you're, if you're okay with, with those sort of like implications, double meanings, why are you not okay with it doing some of that visually? Right. Oh man! Again, I'll have to see. Big time like, Hollywood flirting too. It's like this isn't how fucking people talk. All right. There's a speed limit in this state, Mister Neff. Forty-five miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around ninety. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. So Neff is picking up what she's putting down here. The idea of this accident insurance policy without his knowledge he knows where this is going oh i did write too that they live in this fucking lavish mansion in los angeles and he's like this must have cost thirty thousand dollars and <laughs> you couldn't buy a fucking toilet in austin for thirty thousand dollars anymore <laughs> you can thank joe rogan for the inflation keep austin weird 
Alex. Yes. Okay. And keep those insurance salesmen weirdos. Now, if we want to talk about capitalism, that Austin, that's we can talk about it in that context. But moving on. Neff deduces she is contemplating murder and initially wants no part of it, but eventually devises a plan to murder her husband and trigger the double indemnity clause, which would double the payout. I do like here how innocent the Wikipedia write-up is. Initially wants no part of it, but eventually devises a plan. He just left out that after she ravaged his body, he came to to seeing her way of things. <laughs> she shows up at his house. She she won't take no for an answer. She will not. And, you know, it's so, all... Again, Alex, I know you're a gentleman and everything, but that's in that scenario, they're not behaving like like human beings, right? Like even in the 40s, I think that if somebody that you've been flirting with shows up uninvited in the middle of the night at your house, it doesn't take like 20 minutes of conversation before you, one, agree to kill the spouse and two, like get to it sex-wise. Yes. That's also, in my experience, uh, an indicator that things are eventually going to end in a volatile way is the showing up in the middle of the night <laughs> to get down to brass tacks. And I've been on both sides of that. So, you know, I'm not saying that I'm innocent in all this. You've been the one with the gun and the one getting shot. Yes. And he does tell her, which probably is a line I've actually used. I'm crazy about you, baby. <laughs> Gus eat it up a bit more than that, but... This all stems from initially we think she just hates her husband, says he beats her, he's a drunk, et cetera, et cetera. He does in no time. The The extent of the convincing is like, come on, no, come on, no, please. All right. That's, you know, <laughs> it's tantamount to convincing your buddy to go to the bar to watch the game or, hey, you want to go to Whataburger? No, I shouldn't. You sure? Yeah, come on. And he, <laughs> which leads to his retort, we're going to do it and we're going to do it right. And so now he's like all, all in, hashtag all in, all elite wrestling on this. And he's ready to just go fucking, they devise a really good plan too. It's the best part of the movie as far as like engaging and both intellectually and emotionally. Uh, the entire sequence of explaining how they pulled off the murder. That's the the peak, right? That's the phone conversation. They peak on the phone here easily. Do you did you get the feeling that Billy Wilder and uh, Raymond Chandler maybe kind of as they were doing this, they're like, you know, in real life, we could probably get away with this. <laughs> should we make the movie or should we try to defraud an insurance company? <laughs> so this is loosely based on a true story. There's a novel written. Yeah, there's a novel written called Double Indemnity by James M. Kane, and that was based on the murder of Albert Snyder by Ruth Snyder. And I haven't read the extent of that story to see, you know, how closely it follows. It could also just be, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is based on a true story just because the guy wore skin, but board housewife manipulated dumb insurance salesman into killing her husband. That's the headline and that's it. Yeah. The case was inspiration for the novella double indemnity, which was adapted for the screen by Billy Wilder. Also, Guns N' Roses' 1981 album, Use Your Illusion, features as part of the enclosed artwork a photo of the band posing in front of an oversized reproduction of the Daily News headline photograph announcing Ruth Snyder's execution. All right. Just throwing up like the double horns. (laughs) 
But circling back to your original question, even if this is based on a true story, they probably are thinking to themselves, because from what I read, uh, just a little bit of the writing relationship was contentious. So I imagine what they're both thinking is, I need to watch my back getting out of here tonight. And... You know, Trust I, no one. I need to know how much Paramount has me insured for on this set because this could get dicey real quick. Maybe get rid of that uh, double indemnity clause. <laughs> so with this plan being set into motion, Walter begins to have second thoughts about it. Uh, maybe not second thoughts, but uh, he's reminded that uh, Diedrichson, what's uh, the, he doesn't have a first name, does he? He's just Diedrichson. Husband. Husband. Man number two. <laughs> But he has a daughter, and when he's talking about this, and it shows, I think, initially, like, her back profile, and it's like a full-grown woman. Like, I was thinking it was going to be, like, a little kid or, like, Shirley Temple or some shit, and it's, you know, early 20s. Alex, the mystery of uh, how old this this woman was was way more compelling than the mystery of, you know, what happened with, with the murder, because you're right, like... When they talk about her, they talk about her like she's a little girl. Then you see her, and she is an adult. But when she talks, she talks like a little girl. And she behaves like a little girl. It comes out at some point in the movie that she's in her 20s. Like she has to be in her mid-20s, which kind of like matches her appearance. But but she's acting like she has a curfew, and she has to ask her dad for permission to go out. <laughs> it, it, there was a, So at first, the first half of the movie, I thought that we were just watching one of those classic instances of, oh, she's supposed to be a teenager, but they cast an adult because just that's yeah. just movie yeah, magic. Yeah, yeah. Then when it turned out that, oh, it's just she's supposed to be in her 20s. She's just a bad actress. That didn't make it any better. So, yeah, Jean Heather was the name of the actress who played Lola. She would have been, what, 22 or 23 at the time this movie was made. And, you know, by 1944 standards, or this was in 38, <laughs> that, that means, like, your life is, like, half over. So, She's an old maid. Exactly. <laughs> she should have been married six kids deep by now. It is just kind of a funny reveal. This is her last hurrah. Well, well naturally, when you see how old she is, and she's a very pretty young lady, uh, your thought immediately goes to, oh, man, is Walter going to, like, jump <laughs> jump ship here? <laughs> well, I mean, that that's... I guess we can discuss in a little bit uh, if that if that happens or not. Uh, but in the meantime, I think that a, a bigger point to make is that she is uh, a twenty-something that is playing a twenty-something that just acts like a little girl. The dude that she's dating has to be in his forties, and how old Dino? is he supposed to be? Yes, when he showed up, I was like, "Is this her boyfriend's dad? What happened?" And he's a real asshole, too. He'd be more appreciative. It's, you know, she's this beautiful young woman. And he, come on, get over here. I ain't got no friends. I don't want none. Beautiful young woman with a beautiful stepmother. It's like, dude, don't mess this up. No, that's the dream, man. <laughs> that's porn in the making. I was about to say, Just ask Neff. Play your cards right. It's going to work out well for you. The old man is on his way out. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. We get a recap of the killing, as we mentioned. It's this plan that involves Diedrichson needing to take a train, uh, but on the way over there, they're going to kill him, I assume, by strangulation. And No, he breaks his neck. I thought I thought it was oh. strangulation, but then when they talk about the autopsy, yes, they're like, yes. he broke his neck. You're right. It looks like it when they, they film it. It's because you don't see it, Alex. <laughs> Much like the sex scenes, just like, nah, not important. It's what's implied that's way more dangerous to the mind. 
Uh, so <laughs> Walter then dresses in the same clothes and gets on this train and makes people think that Diedrichson is on there. And then when the moment comes, he jumps off the train and then they move Diedrichson's body onto it to make people think he fell overboard and died on the train tracks. They get in a getaway car and it's, I guess, a moment of levity as we, we learn that women don't know how to handle cars. <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck is unable to start this car. So Fred McMurray basically just like, step aside, sweetheart. This is a man's job. <laughs> And is able to start the car quickly and easily, and off they go. My note says, "LOL, women drivers." <laughs> she can safely uh, be an accomplice to the murder of her husband, but God, don't let her drive by herself. Yeah, absolutely. Don't let her fill up the the car. She'll put regular in it when it needs premium. You know, that's the one <laughs> and joke. Then she'll we didn't flood get. the engine. Yes. Then a man has to come in and do a man's job. It's like, is it not enough that I just killed your husband? <laughs> Have to fix your car too. Walter has, a, I guess, a bit of a premonition, you would say. He knows that he's going to, he he tells this in his voiceover. He knows he's going to get caught, and he just feels the crushing anxiety of him coming over. Uh, when they get into, when he gets into work, Norton, the company president, believes the death was a suicide, but he scoffs at the idea. Uh, Norton played by uh, the noir version of Kurt Fuller. Oh, that's that's a tremendous callback there. <laughs> Brell. Um, yes. We haven't talked about Keys yet, so let's go ahead and do that. Barton Keys, played by Edward G. Robinson. The noir version of Ernest Bornine. If you've never seen a movie from the 1940s, the way Edward G. Robinson portrays the character of Barton Keys is what you think movies from the 1940s are like. <laughs> He's got a bit of a scowl, very dramatic facial features, very pronounced facial features, I should say. Has some big monologues, but he also has that man up in hand for somebody, but I say that <laughs> really quick gift of gab style talking. He's easily big movements. He's the um the MVP of this from an acting perspective. Because everyone else is just kind of a bit over the top and kind of understandably so. But he he reigns everybody in and yeah, he's just acting with a capital A C T I N N G. Um but he's on fire in this scene too because Norton is going to tell Phyllis your husband killed himself we're not going to do anything for you and Keys essentially says I would like to see that and then when he <laughs> this meeting goes horribly <laughs> he just accosts him for what an idiot he is so we get two Oscar clips here back to back right because first we get uh, Barbara Stanwyck's when she uh, she's being harassed by by Norton who's telling her look the police may have ruled this uh, an accident, but we don't believe so. And we are an insurance company, so we we hold the truth. We believe that it was a suicide. And since it was a suicide, you don't get paid double indemnity, single indemnity. You don't get paid anything. And uh, and you think that... You get no indemnity, ma'am. <laughs> yes, you get zero indemnity. And then, and then she fights back. And it is a moment where you... For a moment, I was fooled into thinking that the movie had been kind of downplaying her power, the power of uh, of Barbara Stanwyck, just so that we could have this moment where she rises to the occasion and she fights back and she tells them, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> Expect to hear from my lawyers. And then she storms off. And that's great. And then that's followed by Edward G. Robinson's Oscar clip. Right, like back to back, he where he explains to Norton, explains to his boss 
why everything he said was wrong. It's like it was yeah. not a suicide, you dumbass. Because of this and this, and I have the figures, and I've been working this this job for like thirty years. I know what I'm talking about. You're an idiot. And then he punctuates this by grabbing a glass of water and drinking it so fast it spills over his chest. And I was like, really? <laughs> he does have my favorite line of the movie in this scene also, in which Norton is, you know, outlining his um, thesis on why this is a suicide. And he goes, and that man on the train, what was his name? And Keys goes, his name was Jackson. Probably still is. <laughs> yeah, his, I, I, his, you're right. I had the note I was moving forward here. That that rant where he's just citing all these statistics and like, you know, who the fuck are you? Just motherfucks him. He's like, who, who do you think you are? I've been doing this for 37 years. He said, what does he actually say? 26. That's what it is. The little man. Yeah. Uh, when it's all over, did you find yourself wishing that the movie was about this dude instead? About keys? Yeah. I, I, want, I, to mean, see, I want keys on the case. I, I just want, you know, because a lot of noir for me, I just, I guess, in my limited experience, I related to detectives, to people trying to figure out a mystery. Like, that's not what this is. This is like the mystery. Like I said, at the beginning of the movie, they tell us exactly what's going to happen. And now it's just a matter of watching exactly how Frank McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck are going to fuck it all up. And uh, it, it would be a lot more engaging for me if we were following the cool character, Keys, <laughs> just entangling this. You know, right? This this mysterious death, this suspicious insurance claim, and then he just goes listen to his his little voice inside his head and just trying to figure out what happened. And then at the end, he catches McMurray. But no, we have to go back to this boring dude that is just interested in getting laid. I mean, can relate, you know? Right, but I want my movies to be aspirational. <laughs> I don't want to think with my dick. <laughs> I want to catch the killer. Also, do you think that uh, this movie is just highly regarded by insurance agents everywhere? <laughs> or it's like one of the more scrutinized ones. Like what's um, <laughs> trying to think of a movie that was commercially and critically successful, but people within the industry, it was based upon Twister. <laughs> Twister is one that like, you know, everyone loved Twister. But I remember having like a fuck was a geology class maybe in college. And the professor brought it up at one point in time and just like went off on Twister <laughs> and how historically inaccurate it is. So I'm imagining like that's not how tornadoes work. Well, the biggest thing was the belt that held them like in the, the F5 tornado. They tied the belt to the, the pole or some shit and it managed to protect myself and Helen Hunt. It was freaking sweet. <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> Life insurance conferences across the world annually host a screening of this movie where they all laugh at like the inaccuracies of what uh, Neff and Keys are citing. Or there's they do a, that thing. There's like, a YouTube channel. There's a YouTube channel that is like the real insurance agent or something, and he just breaks apart the movie. Man, or imagine like the f the pompous film snob insurance agent. <laughs> who the first date is he has you know someone over to his apartment to watch double indemnity and provides commentary the entire time not only about the film and the state of the movie industry at the time and now but also explaining the things that are correct and inaccurate about the processes the insurance agents are following that would be the worst human being that has ever lived 
<laughs> but when he finds somebody that sticks around to the end of the day, then he knows he's found the one. That's yeah, at the end of every night. I'm lonely. <laughs> God bless, man. I could do that with uh, Ready to Rumble, so I am not one to throw stones. <laughs> All right, now shit starts to unravel as Lola, who we mentioned, uh, Diedrichson's daughter and the stepdaughter of Phyllis, tells Neff she's convinced that Phyllis is not only behind her father's death, but also the death of Lola's mother, who died under suspicious circumstances when Phyllis was her nurse. Neff begins seeing Lola to keep her from taking the suspicions to the police. <laughs> I mean, as you do, right? It's seeing in quotation marks. I mean, that that they're going out on the town. They're having, you know, it's not like they're just going and getting ice cream and walking around the city square. They're they're in his car. There's presumed dancing. I mean, they look really happy. <laughs> Who knows? Dancing in quotation marks. Well, we also learned too at this point that. Uh, Phyllis has been giving it to Nino on the reg too. And <laughs> she's convinced that Nino's not going to be long for this world either. Why why are we not seeing these things? Why why can't we I, I know I just sound like a broken record complaining about the fact that they don't show us graphic sex scenes in a movie from 1940s, but man, the the, the story works so much better if you actually see that instead of them just pussyfooting around the fact that these adults are having sex. But also, you know, after praising her her Oscar clip where Barbara Stanwyck really gives it to the man and tells the insurance company to to come get it if they want it. <laughs> now, we find out that she's as much of an idiot as Fred McMurray because Lola says that she caught her parading around her her widow <laughs> her widow dress before her husband was dead. Like she was rehearsing how she was going to grieve. Yeah, like uh, I'm a big whore for outfits and stuff, like especially if I'm going on vacation. So like when I went to Chicago last week, I had like laid out all my outfits and stuff. But that's I mean, you hadn't killed anyone. I was about to say, that's not what you do when you plan on killing someone. And then you've I've never premeditated what I'm going to wear at someone's funeral. You know why? Because that's <laughs> psychotic, suspicious behavior. <laughs> it's a little weird at best and in, in terrible taste as well. Somebody walks in. You know, it's like three weeks later, they think back. They're like, wait a second. Did I see Alex just looking at himself in the mirror wearing the, the exact same outfit that he wore to the funeral? Seeing how his ass looked in those slacks. That was a bit <laughs> weird. Walter, I've been living with this little man for 26 years. He's never failed me yet. There's got to be something wrong. Keys is beginning to piece it together. He shows up at Walter's apartment and begins to discuss the possibility that it's a murder and then essentially outlines exactly what Walter and Phyllis did to kill him. So Walter and Phyllis are obviously uh, becoming a bit weary and uh, anxious about this whole thing. Yeah. Keith shows up. He's like, I was watching this movie on TV directed by Billy Wilder. This is by the way, after he, after he has given Neff the worst new job pitch ever. Uh, when he's like, hey, would you like a promotion where you make less money than what you're making now? I forgot about that. What does he say? They kind of quibble like a married couple in this this moment here. It's very brief. Yeah, they. he's like, "Would you like? how would you like to make $50 less? I think that the relationship between these two, between Neff and Keys, is a lot more entertaining than the relationship between 
between Neff and Phyllis. Because here with Neff and, and Keith, we get to see, you know, all of it. Whereas with, with Phyllis and, he, and then with Lola, you know, it, the, the filmmakers are just hiding some stuff away. And and that doesn't work as well as just seeing these two. Like, you're right, bickering like a married couple, but also you can tell that they care for each other. Neff is always lighting the cigars for, for mm-hmm. Keys. Keys Using is, those Strike Anywhere matches that make anybody look cool. I didn't know those things existed until, you know, when I watched this movie. I'm like, that is something amazing. I have a little bit of, of technology from the 40s that I was not aware of. I think you can still get them. They're just not as easily accessible. Insurance agents only. <laughs> They hand them out at the conferences. Did you get your matches? Okay. <laughs> Hurry on in. They're screening double indemnity. <laughs> we got the guy with the YouTube channel <laughs> to do the commentary. So as this anxiety and just general concern builds, they meet up in public. I, I guess somewhat disguised. He has a hat on and she has glasses. But this is where we learn that, you know, she played him. She drops the, you know, pain and gain. That's what. Mark Wahlberg and The Rock have a back and forth on. She just tells him, uh, you killed him. I'm just the one. I, I gave you the idea. And it becomes a back and forth of, if one of us goes down, I'm taking you with me, motherfucker. Yeah, they stare at each other from across the grocery aisle. This is something that I noticed and it started irritating me. And then every time it happened, it irritated me more. And that is that, I don't know if this was Wilder or Chandler, or maybe both of them, but... This is a, you know, it's a quippy story and they kind of move fast. And, you know, I wouldn't say that it's super depressing or anything, but they do like to just interject these minor characters that are played very broadly. And, for example, here when they're at the grocery store and they're having their their kind of like spy meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, there's this woman that gets in the middle just so that she could ask Fred McMurray to to hand her the, the baby food that's on the top shelf. And then after he hands it to her, she's like, I don't know why they always put it on the top shelf. I'm like, what is that? Where did that come from? And then there's the there's the guy at the at the very beginning of the movie, the guy that's uh, working the elevator, right? Like Fred McMurray's like bleeding out, making his way to his office. And this dude is just talking about how they will never give her give him insurance because he has a problem with his heart and just chattering away like like he belongs in a different movie, like in, in an all-out comedy. And then you have the the guy at the train. That that you know kind of end up, ends up becoming a witness. The guy from Oregon, right? Also, like played very broadly. It's like, what is going on? Why, why did they feel the need to introduce these comic relief characters uh, in a movie that doesn't need them? Is it just like a lack of confidence in the material? Like, did it bother you that this was kind of a serious story, and then there was just this really weird comedic element thrown in every now and then? Mm-hmm. It was um, totally inconsistent. We talked about that with some of the older movies that we've done too. Of the they hadn't figured out tonal consistency yet. I guess the people liked it, but you know, we talked about that in Jaws many, many moons ago. Rocky also, just the idea of like it's a really serious subjects at hand, but then we gotta inject a little bit of haha for some reason. It's what people want. It's what they need. You don't want to bum them out. <laughs> so the claim gets rejected and she immediately counters suit during this, you know, the insurance company's covering all their bases. And Neff finds a recording of Keys vouching for him, saying he doesn't need to be investigated or followed in this. There's no connection, yada, yada, yada. And the shame just washes over him. <laughs> and he's not only realized that he's killed a man, but he also, you know, his best friend 
he's betrayed his trust and he'll never get it back. And then he should have just stopped the recording right then, but he keeps listening. And then <laughs> the shame washes over him again when he realizes that uh, that he's been cucked. That on top of everything, <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck is, is uh, hooking up with Nino on the side. The 40-year-old just upgraded from Lola to the stepmom, as we predicted, <laughs> as we encouraged him to do. Yeah, there it is, Walter. It's beginning to come apart at the seams already. Murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And when two people are involved, it's usually sooner. It's time things come to a head, and we see back at Phyllis's home. She's preparing for Walter to come over, and she hides a gun under the cushion in her chair. Walter shows up, and this is really all based around a foot fetish we find out here, because he just goes back to talking about, I've never stopped thinking about that anklet you were wearing the first time I saw you. So he just, dude likes feet. Cool, man. Everyone's got something. <laughs> And she had some, you know, they have this back and forth, this intense dialogue about, you know, you did this, you did that, we did this together. And that's when Phyllis has the best line of the interaction where he says, we're, we're both rotten. You know, we're both to blame. Obviously, she's got a few screws loose, <laughs> but she's, I mean, he killed someone. So she's not wrong in saying that. He, he has no moral high ground. He really shouldn't be passing judgment. <laughs> But also, what was the plan, Alex? Because I know what Phyllis's plan was. She she has a gun. She has a gun. And also, that's really weird. Because the entire movie, we're with uh, with Neff. We're with Frank McMurray's point of view. And then this little bit, this last part at the end, we cut to Phyllis's point of view. So we can see her hide the gun. It's like unnecessary. And it got like the movie breaking its own rules. Because we could have just had Fred McMurray arrive to the house. and then And then we see... You know, he turns and we find out that she has a gun at the same time that he does. She also but, has the gun like wrapped in cloth. So I assumed she was going to like frame him for something. But now she just shoots him. And she can't even aim properly. But that's that's uh, so that's her. What was his plan? Because he didn't bring a gun. Instead, he just comes in and, and just talks to her for a while about how he probably should kill her. And then he goes and closes the blinds. Yeah, because he was trying to set up some scenario where uh, her and Nino get caught together and blamed for the murder of Diedrichson. He was trying. No, to I thought that, but see, I thought that he was going to kill her, and then Nino was going to show up with the police following him, and then the police were going to think that he had killed her, right? Because Nino doesn't know about him, and so by killing Phyllis, then he's completely in the clear. You're right, because he said he was going to get away with it. So um, she shoots him in the arm or the shoulder, but it's not enough to you know take him down right there. She goes to shoot him again, but has pause. And I think this is the dilemma of the movie. Uh, moralistically, if you're watching this, uh, does she really love him or what was her? She said she wanted to shoot him, but she just couldn't do it. And she asked him to hold her. And then he shoots her twice. <laughs> like a man and says goodbye baby she says she's never loved him until a minute ago when i couldn't fire that second shot as she hugs him neff says goodbye baby and shoots her twice killing her he jumped the shark for you there alex where you're like oh that's it i i don't want you to get away with it now or were you already rooting against him from much earlier well at this point i was just like oh man has he gone like fully crazy now and he's my thought was like, is he going to get away? With it? Was he the crazy one all along? Is he going to get away with it? But then he goes outside and Nino shows up and he immediately like goes back to uh, being remorseful and tells Nino to get basically get the fuck out of here. 
you don't know what's in there and you don't want to know. So here's a Not here's a that, nickel. Go back to Lola. <laughs> here's a nickel. Go buy yourself an apartment. <laughs> go get yourself a girlfriend. Uh, the, the movie paints this as his redeeming moment, right? He just murdered a woman in cold blood, but it's okay because he just allowed this terrible ex-boyfriend to go back to to the girl that he was really mean to originally. Like that's nothing good is coming out of this interaction. Like Lola should have been happy. Like Lola was better off without Nino, and he just pushed her back into it. And it's like the movie wants us to cheer him on because he's like, oh, no, see, he's a good guy. He cares for the kids. And we conclude with where we started as he's recording this confession. And we learn that Barton Keys has been standing behind him for some time and knows the truth of what happened. Yeah, he's uh, Nefis, Nefis finishing up his confession and then he gets the beep. And it's like, the mailbox you're trying to reach is full. And he is delirious at this point. He's lost a lot of blood. I mean, he's been recording the story overnight, so he didn't get any medical attention. He's been bleeding for at least an hour and 40 minutes based on <laughs> what's going on in the movie. And he tells Keys, he, I'm getting out of here. I'm fleeing to Mexico. Just give me a little bit of time. But he, he's t- Keys tells him, you're not even going to make the elevator. And he doesn't. And he's just too weak and he collapses and keys calls an ambulance. And he also calls the police walks back over to a fallen Neff and uh, they have an exchange of words basically like, you know, I loved you, dude. Sorry. It's come to this. And he lights a cigarette for him as we fade to the Paramount logo. Guys rock. <laughs> Dudes rock. That's right. <laughs> so is this, is this a dark Knight rises? conundrum alex are are we supposed to wonder forever if neff made it or if he died before the ambulance showed up i didn't consider that i know that his goose is cooked he's dunsky and right uh, he's going to prison yeah and he's convinced he's going to get the gas chamber i know they were a bit more liberal with the death penalty back then so maybe (laughs) that's true but it could be just that he if he can't even make it to the elevator and like you said, he's been bleeding out the entire time that he's been telling this story. I know that I know that men were a little tougher back in the forties, but still, I, I don't I don't think that he I assume that he died. I think there's something very final about that fate to black. <laughs> there's no Walter Neff will return in triple indemnity. And he's smoking that cigarette in a, a fashion of like appreciating his last few moments on Earth. Yes. He's not gonna finish that cigarette. <laughs> It's just letting it dangle uh, from his mouth. Um, final point of contention, Alex. I cannot believe you didn't bring this up. Actually, I, I do because you, you just, this was probably too horrible for you to to dwell on. But uh, those gunshots, no squibs, no CGI oh, either. Yeah, the sound <laughs> added in post-production very obviously also. The worst of both worlds. Like when you don't get any of the effects. No practical and no digital. This is just they might as well have been shooting him with her finger. Pow pow. Well, at least it doesn't have the nerve to like have some computer animated blood squirting out. <laughs> and it is it is the implication too. I'm sorry to go back to your point of like how much is implied in this movie. That's where the real damage is done. <laughs> Okay, there is there is a world of difference between them uh, 
implying that they're having sex but not showing us anything and them showing us a gunshot but the gunshot doesn't really happen <laughs> it would be like if, if we saw them having sex but they still have their clothes on <laughs> hey man i don't know what you wanted them to do in 1944 imagine you just pulling up being like uh where is the uh the goblet of fire where is the <laughs> infinity gauntlet barbara stanwick was inevitable I, I guess so. Her skills with men certainly were. It's infinity anklet. Yeah. <laughs> well played. <laughs> All right. That was Double Indemnity. The story of a man. The story of a man. That's it. <laughs> That's how, how men operate. Story of men and the power that women hold over them. Now, gets to the interesting part. We see if Julio enjoyed a noir. So let's move along to real talk. You know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? I'll tell you. Because the guy you were looking for was too close. Right across the desk from you. Closer than that, Walter. I love you too. 